So our scripture reading today is from Second uh, Samuel chapter 20. Uh, just a quick note about the title in case it's confusing. I don't think it should be confusing for too many people, but it might be. Uh, so uh, it's a reference to uh, MI6, operative James Bond's favorite drink, the martini, vodka martini, and he always ordered it. How did he order it? Shaken, right. not stirred. Uh, which, by the way, this is like this is what happens when I write my sermons. Uh, which makes sense because this is what happens when I preach my sermons too, isn't it? Uh, I started researching the difference between stirred or shaken martinis. Apparently, shaking a martini makes it less alcoholic because it adds more water to it. And so maybe he did that so that he could, uh, you know, keep his wits about him. I don't know. But then I also found other things that said that in the writings, in Ian Fleming's writings, he drank all kinds of different things. It's just, it's easier in a movie to have a nice catchphrase and it sells more tickets. And so, But anyway, that was worthless and free. Um, the kingdom of God is more like the accurate martini, though. The kingdom of God is often stirred, but never shaken, even as in our... A responsive reading, we read about the unshaken kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, now, that is not to say that when the kingdom of God is stirred, it isn't painful or difficult or uh, even looks like things are being shaken. Certainly in the temporal, uh, you know, we know that the church on earth today is the representation of God's kingdom. And we know that individual churches regularly crumble and fold or split. And we look at that and we think perhaps God's kingdom is shapeable after all. But the reality is that these are simply representations, representatives of God's kingdom, outposts, if you will. And though some outposts may crumble and fall, God's kingdom never will. And that's important for us to remember, uh, both during times of trial uh, as a congregation, times of trial as the church uh, as a whole, and times of trial as individuals and families. And so let's go ahead and uh, stand for the reading of God's word and read about one such trial. 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Betri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of David. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Betri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. The king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. And the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, 
Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out, and Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel the, of Beth Makkah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem, to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. The grass fears, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated.
So I'm just going to quickly touch on those closing verses of the chapter. Uh, they're, sort of, they're sort of like a, a summary of David's uh, cabinet. If you are using a Bible or if you have a, uh, a Bible app, you can flip or swipe backwards to or just write down these passages and look at them later. Uh, to, if you look back at 2 Samuel 8, 15 to 18, you see a similar uh, summary passage about David's cabinet. If you go back further then to 1 Samuel 14, verses 49 to 51, you see a, a similar summary statement about Saul's family and Saul's reign. And then if you go back even further to 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 to 17, you see a summary statement about uh, Samuel, the last judge of Israel, who anointed both Saul and David to be kings of Israel. You see a summary of his um, work as leader of God's people. And so what you get then with these, with First and Second Samuel, and you put those together, then you see uh, their sort of transition moments. And so first from transitioning from Samuel to Saul, and then from Saul to David, and the first one is about sort of the, the glory days of David's reign. But then there's a, there's a summary midway through his reign in 2 Samuel that then kind of transitions us into the where what we've been sort of wallowing in, really since chapter 10, uh, the less than glory days of David's reign. Which makes you wonder, why is there a summary statement here and there's still four chapters left? Uh, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel, uh, in one sense, focus more on Israel as a whole, but also just sort of wrap up things about David's reign, some of the last things that you will see under David's reign. But here we are in chapter 20. Several years ago, I preached through the book Ecclesiastes, and it's a, it's a fascinating book. Actually, uh, most, uh, most biblical scholars attribute... Uh, the book to Solomon, David's son. Uh, but it's a book in which a faithful follower of the Lord wrestles openly and honestly with the seeming meaninglessness of life. Uh, in the very first chapter, he writes about the monotony of life. Uh, everything that happens has already happened. There's nothing new under the sun. And when we read chapter 20, especially after being in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 15, 16, 17, and 18, chapter 20, doesn't chapter 20 just sort of emphasize that point. Doesn't chapter 20 just feel like, well, here we are again. Like there's nothing new. There's nothing new in David's reign. There's nothing new under the sun. This is, uh, as the theologian Yogi Berra would put it, it is like deja vu all over again. But is that what's going on here? Is this just an unnecessary repetition of, of yet another rebellion? <clears throat> this time it's tamped down rather quickly, even if somewhat gruesomely. It's another moment where Joab's ferocity is seen in living color. There's, but there's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more going on in chapter 20. And as we read chapter 20, there's two things that we have to remember, actually, as we read God's word always. But specifically here in 2 Samuel, there are two things we have to remember that as we read these chapters, we read them in the light of God's word and of God's promises. And so first of all, we read chapter 20 in light of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7. And while, yes, 
This is another uprising, another rebellion, another attempt to overthrow David. In chapter 7, God promised David, I will establish your throne and the throne of your offspring forever. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So after all that has happened, after all, even all that David has done, we see God remaining faithful to his promise. Not because David is worthy of it, but because God is faithful and he keeps his promises. But the second promise that we have to read chapter 20 through uh, in light of is the promise God made in chapter 12. A promise that, if we were honest, we would prefer he not keep. When God promises consequences for our sin. Specifically, he promises to David in chapter 12, the sword will not depart from your house. And so chapter 20 reminds us of both of these truths. That one, yes, we see the summary, David's cabinet, David's kingdom, David's reign is continuing because God promised it would. But we see yet another uprising, another trial, another difficulty, and we remember this also is because God's promises are true. So quickly what we see is uh, three, if we look at it through the, the lens of four of the characters here, we see a worthless man, a humbled king, a violent partner, and an able woman. Yes, that's a pun. She's an able woman. She's also an able anyway. Maybe you've already forgotten where they're headed. So, First, let's look at a worthless man. In verse 1, we're told that there happened to be there a worthless man. Where? Where exactly did this worthless man happen to be? And we have to recall, he is in Gilgal. They are still in Gilgal. They are still on the other side of the Jordan. They're still waiting to come across. Now, yes, last week in chapter 19, there's just this, this moment of flashing forward to see David's reunion with Mephibosheth. But the reality is that everything that's happening in chapter 19 and 20 is still happening with David not yet returned to Jerusalem. Yes, Absalom is dead. Yes, the people have wondered, what are we going to do now? How should we not get our king back? He's at the place at Gilgal. If you remember, Gilgal is this, it has spiritual significance for Israel. Gilgal was where Joshua gathered the people and they recommitted themselves to the covenant before they entered the promised land. After overtaking the promised land, you know, the mound was set up, the pillars, the remembrance, God has been faithful to us, is set up. Gilgal is this place where you would come to return to God. And so it's the appropriate place for David to call God's people because they had rejected David and in so doing rejected God. Because David was God's anointed king. God anointed David. In fact, God anointed all of their kings. They didn't anoint their own kings. And so when when it tells us that the people anointed Absalom as king, we're supposed to hear that and say, well, that they have definitely rejected not only David, but they have rejected God. So they're coming back to Gilgal to reinstate or at least resubmit to David as the rightful king of Israel. Again, remember, nearly all of Israel had rebelled against David. But now Absalom's dead. Last week we saw that Israel was beginning to wonder, what's next? 
The northern tribes we, we read last week, the northern tribes discuss how, how they ought to bring David back and reinstate him. The, the southern tribe, Judah, is silent. And so David reaches out to Judah and says, hey, shouldn't you be the first, not the last, to be bringing me back? After all, I'm like we're kin. You know, we're, we're of the same people. And so, so Judah comes out. They come out, and some of the men of Benjamin hear about it, because Benjamin's the next uh, tribe, the next region. In fact, Jerusalem is in Benjamin, just north of the Judah tribe, the Judah bear, uh, line. So some of the men of Benjamin come out, and, and Judah and David, they unwisely don't wait for all of Israel to come to this meeting. And so they begin to bring David back. They are ready to bring David back. It is admittedly offensive. It's an affront to the rest of the tribes of Israel. The northern tribes have been treated poorly. Worse than that, when the northern tribes complain about it, we're told that Judah, the men of Judah, spoke fiercely or more fiercely, like they simply got defensive. They didn't hear or weren't willing to listen. They doubled down and argue, and it grows tense. And so this, out of this tension arises this worthless man, Sheba. He blows the horn. He calls all of northern Israel to revolt against David. In verse 1, he says, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his own tents, O Israel. So in, in Sunday school, our children, your children, are studying the Lord's Prayer right now. They're studying about prayer, and they're memorizing the Lord's Prayer. Uh, one of the petitions, one of the lines of the Lord's Prayer is, Your kingdom come, or thy kingdom come. Uh, it's the line that actually... I mentioned most Sundays as to why we have a pastoral prayer, a focus on the kingdom, because we, we pray God's kingdom will come. In the larger catechism of our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, there's a question to help us understand that petition. The question is, why do we pray? What do we pray for in the second petition? And the answer says, in the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, Acknowledging ourselves and all mankind to be by nature under the dominion of sin and Satan, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed. The gospel propagated throughout the world, the Jews called the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. We pray that the church be furnished with all gospel officers and ordinances, purged from corruption, countenanced and maintained by the civil magistrate. We pray that the ordinances of Christ may be purely dispensed and made effectual to the converting of those that are yet in their sins and the confirming and comforting and building up of those who are already converted. We pray that Christ would rule in our hearts here and hasten the time of his second coming and our reigning with him forever. We pray that he would be pleased so to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world as may best conduce these ends. It's a lot of words. 
that are essentially saying there are two kingdoms and only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of sin and Satan. Those are the only two options. There is no third middle way. There is no uh, compromise between the two. You are either serving the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. Now, Satan is smart enough to know not to call it the kingdom of Satan. Like, that's, that's bad publicity. Like Most of us would not be like, well, give him the choice between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. I don't know, Satan, he's got a pretty good thing going there. Do you get dental with that? Uh, no, we don't. Satan is much smarter than that. So he'll call the kingdom of Satan living for yourself. He'll call the kingdom of Satan you know, secularism. Although we in this room probably hear secularism and we think, oh, those are the enemies of God. But secularism, really, uh, most easily defined secularism is, uh, I want I want the good things of the kingdom without the king. That's all secularism is. I want the good things of this life without having to acknowledge the life giver. I mean, if that's what secularism is, then we realize that a, a lot of us are secularists, even in this room. <clears throat> Listen, there are plenty of Shivas who would like nothing more than to stir up offenses and hurts. Who love to kind of stir the pot. You know, we have, some of us have Shivas, and I say some of us because all of us sound so strong, but some of us have Shivas inside talking to us. You know, when you get that sense of, I don't belong. You know, everyone else in the church has it all together. I don't belong there. That's Shiva. Saying, what do you have to do with the kingdom of God? You don't belong there. When you get overwhelmed or feel like, what is the point? Nothing's going to change. That's Shiva. When you say things to yourself or others, he'll never change. She doesn't care. Divisions, factions. This is Shiva at work. Jesus said that it only takes a mustard seed of faith to move mountains, and that's true. It also only takes a mustard seed of unforgiveness to erode and topple churches and relationships. And even as we see here, to divide kingdoms. Maybe you're thinking I'm overreacting a little bit, and after all, it doesn't go very far. That's the point of the author when he says he just kept going further and further north because Israel wasn't behind Sheba. 
like he kept going further and further north, and people were like, yeah, no, he, no, no, thank you, no, close the doors. And he gets finally to like this last outpost, this last fortified city, and you think, well, and it didn't go well for him, so, I mean, why, what's the big deal? I mean, why not focus on the positive here, Leonard? Because a seed has been sown by Sheba. A, a mustard seed of resentment toward David's house and toward the tribe of Judah. And in 1 Kings 12, 16, you will hear a familiar chorus come out of the men of Israel. And you just look at verse 1 here and what Sheba said, and I will read for you what it says in 1 Kings 12, 16, and see if they seem somewhat familiar to you. In 1 Kings 12, 16, the men of Israel will say, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. This seed of resentment, this seed of division is sown. You cannot control the outcome of your sin. Is Sheba responsible for the folly and sin of David's grandson, Rehoboam? Of course not. Nor is he responsible for the subsequent sin of Jeroboam, who would lead the divided northern kingdom. But he is responsible for his own bitterness, and he is responsible for the bitterness that he sowed in all of Israel. His bitterness accomplished the dividing of the kingdom of Israel, the stirring of the kingdom of God. Listen, harboring that kind of resentment, I mean, was, were the tribes of Israel sinned against? Were they? Yeah, they were. Judah acted irresponsibly. They acted poorly. It was unwise. You know, letting go of bitterness, or better yet, clinging to forgiveness, it has nothing to do with whether the other person meant to do wrong or not. In fact, forgiveness is all about, yes, I know what you did was wrong, and I forgive you. I release you from needing to make payment for that. Harboring bitterness doesn't help anyone. It doesn't... Usually harboring bitterness, uh, if you've noticed it, it doesn't even harm the other person. They're clueless about it. So you're really just hurting yourself. And you know, whether you're a husband or a wife, if you see this growing in your spouse, you do them no favors by ignoring it, by not coming together back to the gospel, like bringing gospel truth to a hurt individual, reminding them that, that, that Christ also was sinned against, even by us, and, and he forgives and does not treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Sheba is a worthless man. Even the author minces no words, literally calling him a son of Belial. He is a worthless man. 
Which brings us to David briefly, because, and I say briefly because David isn't very active in this passage, is he? There's not much going on with David here. In fact, even the, the narrator, he mentions David less than he mentions Sheba. And he only mentions him as much as he mentions Amasa by name. And Amasa dies halfway through the chapter. But we do see in David, at least in this one portion of the story about him, a humbled king. Humbled by his choices. Not humiliated, but humbled. David is showing some of his original colors. He's shepherding the hurting. The first thing he does when he returns to Israel is to care for and provide for the ten concubines that he had left behind. It would be very easy and in fact culturally expected for David to simply discard these women. To either dispose of them or just kick them out and be done with them because they are tarnished according to that culture. David's son Absalom had had essentially raped these ten concubines of David's in order to show that he had the power of the kingdom. But David cares for these women. Cares for them so much that he doesn't even uh, return them to his employ as concubines, but simply cares for them and loves them as though they were widows. He provides shelter and provision, protection, And he does this even knowing that this will be a constant reminder to him. Their presence would be a constant reminder both of the wickedness of his son and of the sinfulness of his own choices and actions. And yet, he's humbled and he cares for them. Sometimes it's good for us to remember, not in a dwelling on the shame of your past, not in a humiliated sense, but in a humbled sense. Sense. I love that passage in Genesis that tells us about uh, Jacob when he wrestled all night with the Lord. Like physically wrestled with the Lord. And at the end, at daybreak, do you remember like God touches his hip and like puts his hip out of socket? Which has always amused me. He's like, dude, you cheated. But... Anyway, it's God, God gets to do that, I guess. But do you remember, like, at the end of the passage, it's just a throwaway, and it never tells us anything else about it. Like, at one point it says, oh, and this is why they don't eat that, that uh, piece of meat. But it also said, and Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his days. I love that. Jacob walked with a limp the rest of his days. But that walking with a limp brought him to God. He would limp toward God, not away. What is, what is your limp? What reminds you of the mercy of God, that God has been merciful to you? That you've been delivered? Because when we forget God's mercy for us, we forget to be merciful to others. And so we see David humbled, and this reminds us and brings us to, really, in this passage, the main character. Mentioned over and over and over is Joab, David's violent partner. 
See, there's two ways that you can rebel against God's kingdom. One, you can be totally Shiva-like and decide, I'm going to build my own kingdom. Or you can rebel against God's kingdom and say, well, I'm going to use God's kingdom for my glory. I'm going to take these things of God and just use them to promote my agenda. Joab dominates his chapter, as I said. I don't know if you noticed that the army, even when Joab is not in charge, is referred to as Joab's men. Not even referred to as David's men anymore. Joab's men. Even when David tried to replace Joab, he's named Amasa as the new commander of his army. He says that, uh, we're told that uh, his first opportunity to shine uh, as David's man, he, he sends him out to gather the men quickly of Judah so that they can pursue Sheba. But Amasa shows us that perhaps this is one of the reasons that he, uh, he was slaughtered. The men of Israel were slaughtered in the uprising. Amasa doesn't seem to be that great of a general after all. He can't seem to round up the men in time. And he's late. And so David sends Abishai, still not Joab. He sends Abishai, Joab's brother. But we're told Abishai leads Joab's men. And so eventually they get to some stone, the Gibeon stone, where late Amasa, soon to be known as the late Amasa, he shows up. Joab hides behind friendliness. Literally, he says to him, is peace with you, my brother? Is shalom with you, my brother? As he reaches out a friendly gesture with his right hand to looking like he's going to hug Amasa. He has a sword hidden on his thigh that he is able to bring out unbeknownst to Amasa and strike him so effectively that he does not even have to strike twice. And we're told one of, again, Joab's men. One of Joab's men. And you hear his passage, like his, his call to arms mentions Joab twice and David just once in the middle. But... The men are a little thrown off by the gruesomeness of Amasa's death. So this man knows he simply unceremoniously throws Amasa into a field, throws a blanket over him so that, so that the men will follow Joab. It's horrific. It's self-serving. It's intended to remind us that there are, as Jesus warns in Matthew 7, as Paul warns in Acts 20, there are fierce wolves in sheep's clothing who prey on God's people, who abuse their positions. And how unfortunate when the church, like David, simply accept their sin and wickedness because of the pragmatic results. How awful is it when the church turns a blind eye to sin and wickedness because the results are good. You know, we're bringing people in. God's work is being done. Joab will stop at nothing. He's even willing to put an entire city of God's people to the sword. Joab breaks God's law, even against enemy cities. Before you were to put them to siege, 
you were to offer terms of peace. And only if they wouldn't receive those terms would you then uh, put the city under siege. But Joab comes to the city of Israel. And this brings us finally to the able woman or the able woman, whichever you prefer. And once again, the author uses a subtle method to let us know that this woman is a godly woman. She's wise, not in the sense of the, uh, the wisdom we've seen developed through chapters 15 to 20, this worldly wisdom, this pragmatic wisdom. She's wise according to God's standards because this is the only place that Yahweh, that the Lord, is mentioned, is on her lips. She's the only one to mention the Lord. She calls for a parlay with Joab. She charges him with the very thing he's in the process of doing, which is odd. Here is Joab with an army surrounding a fortified city. They have a mound built up to the second level of the wall because at the second level it's not as strong. And they are proceeding to break down the wall. She says, you uh, you seem to be here uh, with destruction and death on your hearts. I was like, what? Me? Oh, you misunderstand. I, we're here. We're a welcoming party. This is a pounding. Uh, we're just here to make sure you guys feel good. Uh, no, it's bizarre that he's like, what? No, far be it from me. Is he like putting hammers down? Has he got a sword behind his back? I, I still don't understand how he's arguing with this woman. But he does tell her, you know, we're just looking for one man. If you give him up, then we'll be fine. The woman agrees, has the head of Sheba thrown out over the wall, and the chapter ends at it as just the same way it begins, with the blowing of a trumpet and the dispersing of the people to their homes. It's an interesting, it's an interesting pattern that the Old Testament establishes for us, isn't it? The death of one for the saving of many. Give up Sheba and the city will be saved. The death of the firstborn sons of Egypt so that the nation of Israel can be saved. In Joshua, Achan, who had sinned against the Lord, dies so that the innocent Israelite army would be spared. Jonah, who's running from the Lord, is thrown overboard so that the innocent sailors could be saved. Sheba, A rebel against God's kingdom dies so that the innocent citizens of Abel can be spared. Now in all of these cases, a wicked man dies and the innocent are saved. But the question still remains and it's hauntingly there throughout the Old Testament as well. What if there are no innocent? 
What if the innocent are only innocent by comparison? What if in reality they are not so innocent before the Lord? What if all of the wicked deserve death? Can the righteousness of a few spare the wicked? It's the question Abraham raises in Sodom, at Sodom and Gomorrah. Could, could the righteousness of a few spare the wickedness, the results spare what the wicked deserve? But what if none of us is actually innocent? Is a substitute possible? Only if the Lord provides. Just as he provided the substitute for Isaac on the altar, just as he provided the substitute throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, year after year, the unblemished lamb dying for the sins of the people, the innocent dying so that the guilty could live. All preparing the way and pointing to the need of the perfect lamb of God, the son of God, the one righteous one dying so that the wicked could be saved. David is not the righteous king. And he's proven it for this entire section of his kingdom, of his reign. At least since chapter 10, all the way through now chapter 20. Which means half of the book so far is proving to us David is not, though a man after God's own heart, is not the righteous king. David needs a righteous king. David needs a merciful God. David needs his son and his Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And so do you, and so do I. So that we would not be Sheba's either to ourselves or to others, so that we might not be Joab's. So that we would recognize that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you don't deal with us according to what our sins deserve. We pray, God, that you would Convict our hearts, first of all. Show us the ways that we, uh, at times, do embrace divisive ways. We harbor resentments and hurts and pains. God, help us to be people who are pursuing reconciliation with one another. When we know that others are hurt, make us those who would leave our offerings in pursuit of reconciliation. When we have been hurt, make us those who will pursue our brother or sister. Seeking reconciliation and forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice for us. Not the guilty for the innocent, but the innocent for the guilty. 
And would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.